Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today I have as my guest, Kat Armas. She's the author of Abuelita Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength. And we have a deep dive conversation on how to read scripture and the lessons that we can learn from an Abuelita Faith. Uh, Kat is a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary. She's a Cuban-American writer and speaker. She hosts the Protagonistas podcast, where she highlights the stories of everyday women of color, including writers, pastors, church leaders, and theologians. And she's also written for Christianity Today, Sojourners Relevant, Christians for Biblical Equality, the Fuller Youth Institute, Fathom Magazine, and Missio Alliance. She also works on the Living a Better Story project at the Fuller Youth Institute and regularly speaks at conferences on race and justice. You're really going to love this conversation. It's been one of my favorites so far. Hi, Kat. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I really, again, really liked your books. I'm going to show it for the folks watching on video there. Abuelita Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength uh, coming out, uh, would you say August the 10th? Is that yes, right, what you said? So, yeah, can you share some of the key moments, Kat, in your own spiritual journey that led you to embrace uh, your call to, to teach and to write? And uh, how does um, the, your book, Abuelita Faith, uh, emerge out of that journey? Yeah, no, that's a good, great question. Thank you so much for asking. So um, I think for me, I had sort of always been a writer, you know, I've always, it's one of those things that, you know, you always, you don't start calling yourself a writer until later on. And then you realize like, I've been doing this for a long time. It's just now it just became official, quote unquote. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I've been writing for a very long time. And, um, you know, growing up Catholic, and then sort of transitioning to a more Protestant um you know, expression of faith. I, in that transition, that was very, um, that was a key moment for me because I just began really just writing down um, a lot of, of what was happening internally and a lot of how I was processing um, my spirituality and, and the Bible and all of these things. Um, and I, you know, growing up Catholic, not as particularly in um, the space of Catholicism that I was in, you know, the Bible, there's not a lot of exegesis, you know, the Bible, it's, it's a, a primarily focused more on sacraments and things like that. Um, so I wasn't super into scripture. And it wasn't until I got into um, more Protestant um, expressions of faith that I got really into the Bible. And I thought that was a very good way to sort of connect the sacraments and connect, you know, all the things that I grew up doing with, um, you know, God's word. Um, so I think that was also a very key moment getting really into um, my study of scripture and um, just starting to write down a lot of the things that um, were speaking to me. And that's when I decided to go to seminary. And from there, um, I just, you know, continued to write and continue to teach. And, and, you know, I started off at a very conservative, in a very conservative area, in a very conservative um, denomination where, you know, there was very limited roles for women. And so I would do a lot of teaching and I would do a lot of these things, um, but only, you know, in, in specific spaces. Um, but once I left that space and I started to, you know, embrace this Awalita theology and I, um, you know, started seeking more liberating spaces for women, that's when it sort of just, you know, turned into something where, you know, wait a minute, I think I can do this on a broader level. Um, and I just began writing. And it's funny because at first I began to speak and teach from my position as someone coming out of, you know, a complementarian view of, you know, the world into an egalitarian. And as a Cuban American, I was also being in a very white space, you know, sort of out loud, you know, whether it was through blogging or writing articles, um, began talking about my experiences embracing my Cuban Americanness. And so I will say it was, um, yeah, once I, I, you know, kind of found myself leaving one space and kind of going through this decolonizing or deconstructing as, as many people call it, um, you know, sort of this spiritual or identity crisis um, and just working that out out loud, you know, working that out and realizing that a lot of people were, you know, have gone through that or, or were going through that or are going through that. Um, and so I was able to kind of use my experiences and my study of scripture and, you know, my seminary background and, and yeah, you know, I have a passion to, um, to make, you know, theology or to make 
uh, biblical studies, if you will, accessible, right? I think that we have so many amazing conversations in seminary, but the lay Christian, you know, isn't a part of it um, because, you know, whether we're talking about Hebrew or Greek or whatever it is, yeah, um, you know, I feel like the, the conversations are very separate. And so I'm, I'm very passionate about just making a lot of this stuff accessible, which is what I hope I did a little bit in Awanita Faith. Um, but yeah, so anyway, so that's sort of those key moments were sort of my leaving one space entering another several times, right? You know, sort of entering the Protestant space and then entering the, the non-complementarian or whatever you want to call it space um, and just doing that out loud. Um, yeah, and in spaces where people might um, relate. And then that's sort of where Awalita Faith um, kind of started coming to life, you know, as I was doing that, my own internal work, but, you know, out loud or, or in front of people, I guess you can say, um, I just began to develop these ideas and, and through my reading and my study and all of that. And yeah, just sort of became, you know, what it is now. And just, just to help everybody, what, what is Abuelita faith? Talk about what the word itself means and then what you mean by that with, with the, in that phrase with faith, Abuelita faith, what does that look like? What does that mean to you? Yeah, so abuelita means grandmother in Spanish, and um, as we were speaking earlier, the ita is sort of like a, a term of endearment, you know, it's like little grandmother, I mean, it's not, it's, that's the exact translation, but it sort of just means, you know, um, someone close to you, or someone, you know, something sweet, or something, you know, it's just a, a term of endearment, it's hard to really uh, uh, translate, but yeah, so abuelita faith is, is, um, just looking at faith um, through this abuelita, through this grandmother lens. Um, and in my book, I do that through a biblical sort of, you know, I, I look in scripture for abuelita theologians. So what I argue are grandmother theologians, and these are overlooked or unnamed women. Um, they may be background stories that we, you know, don't pay much attention to or background characters that oftentimes get overlooked. Same thing with our grandmothers, right? One of the central questions that I ask is what if the greatest theologians the world has ever known are those whom the world wouldn't consider theologians at all? You know, and that sort of stems from, you know, again, my, my study of scripture and my, after leaving a very white evangelical, you know, male dominant space and kind of wrestling with, man, you know, I've been learning so much in seminary, but there is so much that um, invaluable theological insights that I gained from my upbringing, from my grandmother, who was an immigrant, uneducated, right? Um, so much of her life, and not even in, you know, um, how she articulated certain theological beliefs or how she exegeted certain passages, but in just how she lived her life and how she used her hands and her body um, as a means to theologize, like so many women in the Bible. And so Awalita theology, um, which is essentially, you know, what Awalita, you know, I'm, I'm sort of taking Awalita faith and, and I'm explaining what an Awalita theology is. And Awalita theology, you know, does stem from um, a Latinx or Latine, as I call it in the book, um, perspective. You know, it stems from the reality that many of our grandmothers, you know, didn't have the luxury to become educated in the Western formal sense. Um, but they have served as our, you know, as our priestesses, quote unquote, or they have served as our, you know, theologians in residence, right, in our homes. Um, they have formed us theologically and spiritually, um, but they wouldn't be considered theologians, right, in the, in, in the dominant culture, or they wouldn't be considered theologians in, in everyday, you know, society. Um, but the work that they do is, I argue, I mean, deeper and more, you know, than we can learn from any classroom or, or any of that. And I'm not against the classroom. I mean, I love, mm -hmm. you know, being in the classroom. I really do. I'm getting more degrees, but yeah. So that's sort of what um, I would say an Awalita theology is. It stems from the Latinx experience, but it's not um, particularly, it's not just from the Latinx, Latinx experience. I think so many of us know um, theological grandmothers who have shaped us, right? Um, no matter what culture we're in. And so, yeah, it's just, um, it's, an, it's investigating um, how God works through those who are overlooked in our society and in the Bible. Yeah, and that's such a, just an important word. And uh, again, I, I, I appreciated the way you were able to weave stories about your own grandma uh, in with um, scriptural stories you learn history from reading your book. And yeah, and again, it's, it's obvious that you're not anti-intellectual because you have a pretty rich bibliography. You dialogue with a lot of uh, 
well-known uh, known scholars. You bring really deep biblical insights into into all into all your work, but you do make the the, the key point and 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 I actually love it. Just being, I've been a seminary professor for uh, let's see, twenty three years now, and I basically grew up at seminary. Never really left, essentially. Uh, right. Uh, you know, I always thought I've been in school since I was four years old, and I'm fifty two <laughs> right. now, so it's been a, it's been a long time. But you know, but one of the real challenges, and your book's such a great counter to it, is um we can create these uh, intellectual frameworks that are beautiful in some ways, but the problem is that oftentimes they just exist in our heads. So you meet right. folks that they're never content with the church the way it is because it's not like it is in their head. And when, you know, when I read about, uh, you know, your abuelita, this was a woman who had real power, who knew where she was. And she, one of my favorite phrases, she had real skin in the game. She loved her mm -hmm. family. Yeah. Uh, she loved uh, her community. And so her theologizing comes out of the streets in the best sense of the word, right. that it's not just abstraction. It's some um, lived out faith, which is both uh can be dangerous at some level to the powers that be, but it's right. really powerful because it's such a powerful model. And you love to see people that actually live out the gospel. Right, right. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I think that, you know, that's, that's sort of like what we lose when we only think about theologizing in our minds is, you know, we lose that connection we have to our bodies and we yeah. lose that connection we, you know, that are, that we have with other people um, through just the way that we use our hands, you know, through dance, through sewing, through, you know, I have chapters on those things. You know, I think that it's, um, it, we, we should not take that for granted. And, and maybe we could talk about this a, a little later, but that's something that was standing out to me so much in the Bible. You know, I'm, I'm reading the stories and I'm saying, wait a minute, like these women, they weren't theologizing the way that we would, um, that right now, you know, nowadays that we would expect, but they were literally sewing like Tabitha, you know, that's the one thing we know about her from the Bible that she made tunics for the widows and her, you know, community. And she was called a disciple and we don't know anything else that she did other than sew tunics. Right. And so I, that made me think of my grandmother and, you know, that's what she did. And, and she, you know, I call her disciple now, you know, um, because of that. And maybe I, I wouldn't have because she just, you know, quote unquote, just sewed, you know, dresses. Right. Um, but yeah, and these are all, you know, we lose this connection with our body. We lose this connection. Um, I think with God, you know, because God gives us gifts in, in many different ways and, and yeah. So anyway, um, I think that it's important to have all of it, the intellectual stuff and the embodied stuff. And, and of course this book, I'm arguing more for the embodied because we have a, a you know, surplus of the intellectual, but yeah, we need all of it for sure. That's so good. And just to get to your to your own method, and again, you've done a lot of study, um, and then but you've been able to find sort of overlooked persons in the Bible, and that to me means you are asking different types of questions than say you know maybe some of your professors did, or maybe what a, you know a typical like you know for me, I'm from Ohio, so you know, I'm just a white guy from Ohio or whatever that I would probably ask from when I'm reading a text. So. What are some of your favorite questions or how do you position yourself when you're reading a text to draw out the type of rich insights that you've been able to get, Kat? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll use kind of Tabitha's example again, you know, as far as the Bible, you know, we don't get the full story all the time. We get snippets of these stories, you know. I know many of us like to pretend that that's all, no, that's what we get. And so that's all there is, but there's more, you know, yeah. um, we're just getting like quick, you know, here and there, particularly in the gospels, you know, we're just getting quick. Jesus did this and then he got here and then this happened. Um, but I love to, you know, just sort of stop and ask, but wait a minute, you know, again, with Tabitha, like, why is that the only thing we know about her? That tells us something, right? Yeah. I mean, she's one of like, what, four people that was resurrected in the entire New Testament. Like, why was she resurrected? You know, there clearly had to be enough. Um, there was something about her, you know, sewing these tunics that made her life worthy of resurrection, you know, and of course, all life is worthy of resurrection, but there's just something that that just forces me to stop and wait a minute. Um, same thing, you know, I talk about Rispa and 
And there's so much about her story and her story is short, Mm -hmm. but there is, I mean, it is so rich and so deep. I mean, you know, we hear that she's sitting protesting the unjust murders of her sons for six months. And so that makes me stop and wait a minute, six months. Like, what is she doing out there? Who came to help her? What was this like? What, you know, and it, it doesn't stop there. I mean, David finds out how did David hear like what, you know, what was going, you know, what was happening. And so anyway, so yeah, it's just, sort of filling in the blanks. And and I I like to say that, and I I say this in my book that I like to ask more questions than, you know, provide answers. And because that keeps us curious, right? Um, So the more questions that we can pull from what's not said in the text, um, yeah, just helps us to to be curious, um, to stay humble, right? Because there's the more questions that we have, the more we realize that we don't know a lot. and, and so I just like to ask um, just whatever isn't said, whatever's not there. I'm just, I'm just wondering, well, what about this? Another thing, um, and I know we might talk about this in a bit about, you know, just decolonial or post-colonial readings, but another thing is that we were so used to reading the Bible from our Western mindset. And I, I you know, and, and I try and do a lot of decolonial work in the book and, and particularly in the Bible, but at the end of the day, I'm a Western person. So, you know, everything's going to be filtered through a Western lens, but even through my Western lens, I want to ask, you know, but, but what about the other people on the other side of this? You know, when God says, go conquer this land, well, what about the conquered, you know, like, what questions can we ask about them? You know, what about the throwaway characters? Like I, I you know, I, I kind of go through a little bit of, of the story of Orpah, you know, and Ruth and Naomi and, and the other sister Orpah. And what about her story? Like, you know, she's just kind of brushed to the side because she didn't stay with Naomi and maybe she wasn't as faithful as Ruth, right? But what does it mean that she went back to her mother's house, which is the, you know, what's in Hebrew there? What does it mean that she went to her mother's house? What is a a sort of decolonial reading of this? How do other people groups understand this? You know, as I mentioned, the Cherokee peoples, when they read that, that makes sense to them because they go back to their mother's house. That's a matriarchal thing, right? Um, It's sort of a, in in a decolonial sense, it's anti-patriarchal. So Anyways, I know I'm bringing up a lot of different examples, but all to say that there's so many angles that we can take and so many questions that we can ask that we don't typically ask because we're, we're sort of just told what these things mean. You know, we're told, you know, what the, the moral of the story is or what the characters this. Um, but I think if we allow ourselves to, to, to just fill in the blanks with our questions, not necessarily our answers, but our questions, then then yeah, I, I think that there's so much that we can glean from the text. And that's that's what I try to do. No, and you do. You do it so well in the book. You get things from so many different angles. And again, like you just if you just listen to what Kat said, that's like several different chapters she's talking about with the different characters <laughs> that she really did. And it just weaves this all together in this beautiful uh, piece. And I mean, you mentioned the, the, the phrase post-colonial reading and obviously depending on where you come from, that can be a threatening sounding kind of hermeneutic or it can be a liberating type of a hermeneutic. So when you, when you use that kind of a, um, a reading style, like I found it pretty helpful in my own life. It was, it was actually, I guess, I heard this from Erwin McManus, who was pastor out in Los Angeles. He was speaking at let's see, Willow Creek, and this was a million years ago too, but it was the first time I ever heard him speak. And he always talked about, I mean, the way he talked about, it, he said, we need to, we always read the Bible in the West through the eyes of the good guys, but we need to learn to read it upside down. He called it a barbarian reading of the Bible, but he was really doing this post-colonial stuff. Like he's talked about, like when David fights Goliath, there's always going to be people that are feeling more like the Philistines or whatever than, uh, than an Israelite. Um, And so like when you kind of flip things over and you read the text through a different power dynamic with maybe the assumption that we're not the hero in the story, or maybe the the person that we don't think is the hero is the hero. Like, what does that do for you? And, and how does that challenge both? Because um, post-colonial readings, it isn't just um, kind of lionizing the oppressed and, and demonizing the powerful. Right. It's, it's both. So how does it speak really in both directions? And so like, how does it help us to, to change whether we're identify more with the, the oppressed or more with the oppressors? How does that kind of reading help us to grow in Christ? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so kind of what I was saying earlier about, you know, looking, so we, we hear so much in the Bible about, you know, how the Canaanites and how, you know, they, they were, we were told to, or the Israelites were told to conquer the Canaanites and to kill every woman and child. And, 
you know, um, and I think, you know, a post-colonial reading would not dismiss that because that's a huge part of the story, of course, but then would also would just read the scripture from the Canaanites eyes. And what is yeah. it, you know, what is it like um, to read about how your people, um, you know, are, are to be destroyed, right? Um, how are we to uh, wrestle with that, you know? And I think that that's something I, I mentioned that in my book and, and I mentioned, you know, how to be a faithful reader of scripture that we, we have to do that, you know, in order to, to really get all of it. Um, because if we believe that God, you know, care, cares about the least of these and the marginalized, um, we're going to have to sit in that weird tension, you know, where the least of these in that specific, you know, if we're looking at it in a broader lens might be the Canaanites in that moment, because they are the ones that are being completely torn to shreds, you know, um, being oppressed, you know, again, by yes, you know, the, the sort of the, the thing of the story is that the Israelites are the minor characters and they are to go conquer the major characters at that time. But, but yeah, I think to be a responsible reader of scripture, um, we got to force ourselves to, to look at it in every angle. I think that's that sort of Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with God. I sort of mentioned that in the sense of like, you know, we, we are to wrestle with the text the way that Jacob wrestles with God, right? Um, and I, I, I sort of draw that from Will Gaffney, um, Wilda Gaffney, the biblical scholar, womanist biblical scholar. Um, and yeah, and I think that, so to do a post-colonial reading, I think it just invites us um, to look at the text in every angle. It invites us to look at the text through, um, through the colonized, you know, we look at like, for example, the Canaanite woman. I mean, she was in territory that wasn't hers. She was triply you know, marginalized. She was a colonized body. And we just sort of investigate the text through her lens. Um, you know, in, in the story of the Canaanite mother, when she's in, engaging with Jesus, I noticed so much that she was very overlooked, even in her own story. Like, you know, we focus so much on Jesus and was he racist? Why did he call her a dog? Or what did Jesus mean? Or, you know, was he biased or, you know, whatever, all the questions that we ask about Jesus. Um, but what about her? You know, like she's just literally thrust to the side of her own story. Um, and I think that that does a disservice to everything that we can glean. And, you know, I call her an abuelita theologian in, in my book. Because, you know, Jesus literally says that she's a woman of great faith. And he says that, and I can't remember if it's right before, or right after he tells the disciples that they have little faith, you know, and so she theologizes, she calls him the son of God. I mean, she does all of this incredible, um, you know, stuff, work, theologizing, whatever you want to call it. Um, and yeah, she's the Canaanite mom. Okay. You know, we kind of just breeze through her story, but she would be considered a colonized body. Um, and so I think, yeah, um, to, to do a post-colonial reading of scripture, like, as you mentioned, to not see ourselves as the hero of the story, um, but to allow, you know, those who are um, overlooked in the narrative, who are the conquered in the narrative, um, you know, to speak, to do some talking back, right? Um and, and again, an example would be like Orpa, right? What does it mean that she is even in the narrative? And what does it mean, you know, what does her narrative mean to people who are colonized? Because she would have also been a body that she was in an area not her own. And she was told to go be with the people who were not her people. And she was told to go worship a God who was not her God, right? Um, and so, yeah, so I think that that's sort of the angle that I try and take you know, anti-imperialism, you know, because so much like we don't realize how much of it is all, all about land and about territory and about, you know, all of these things that we don't really understand because, you know, the land that we're on was taken from others and we, ex you know, we don't, that doesn't affect our daily reality. Um, but if we are the people whose land was taken from us, then how are we to understand, um, yeah, how all of this works? And so I think it's important to get a richer view and reading of the Bible and of, of faith and of God and how other people um, engage with this stuff. I think it's important. So, yeah. No, that's good. And I, I want to read a quote from um, page 40. I think it's, it's this is just jump leads right out from what we just said. It's you're right. Um, <clears throat> with many of us uh, with varying levels of privilege, uh, when many of us with varying levels of privilege interact with the Bible stories, particularly those of Jesus engaging with marginalized women, we often have to force ourselves into the narrative 
I wonder if much of our Abuelita's theological insights come from the fact that they can see themselves clearly in the story. I, I thought that was just a fantastic, um, I guess, a couple sentences there with a, just a great insight. So how, how can us, um, how can those of us and uh, with, with some level of privilege or lots of privilege learn to reread the Bible with the same eyes that your Abuelita was able to read the Bible with? So yeah, where's that? Where's um, the hope for a person like me, for example? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I carry very varying levels of privilege, you know, due to my educational status and all of those things. So yeah, I think it, the same goes for me as well. I think that we're, um, you know, taught to 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 try and force ourselves into these narratives and. And, you know, a, a, a friend of mine, she calls it like Disney princess theology that we always think that we're the, you know, the one that is, is in need of, you know, um, we need to be saved from whatever. And, and we create these sort of, um, you know, we create these, these things in our lives so that we can be the ones, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh, that's us, you know, blessed are, oh, talking about us, you know. Um, but I think, you know, being honest about who we are in the story and being honest about, um, you know, like I like to say, in many ways, America, right, our country is like the Babylon or is the Egypt, you know, yeah, we like to yeah. think that we're Israel, but we're not, we're Babylon, we're Egypt, we're the ones doing the oppressing of, you know, the Israel that's in our midst, right? And so in the same way, when we investigate the characters, I think that, you know, who are we and um, how can we, you know, take a good look at our lives and our privilege and our varying levels of privilege? Because I think obviously we know that privilege is varies from person to person, situation to situation. You know, I might be more privileged in some spaces and less in others, but, <laughs> but yeah, and just being um, honest about that. Um, and I think that, that when we learn or when we are, when we sit in and sort of um, allow ourselves to be taught by those whom the narrative, who they don't have to force themselves into the narrative, right? Like the narrative is about them. Like this morning, I was just reading about the parable of, or not the parable, the story that Jesus tells or of the, the woman who gives all her coins, right? That he's, and I love that it, it's in Mark, I believe chapter 10 or chapter 12. And, you know, Jesus is just looking around, you know, and he sees the poor widow and she puts all her, you know, all her pennies in there. And he says, look at her, notice her, look at what she just did. Um, yeah. And I think that there's so many of our grandmothers, they're like, oh yeah, that's, that's me. <laughs> like I I'm the one that did that, you know? Um, but I think, yeah, it's just a matter of, of not just being honest about our privilege and, and being honest of who we are in the story, but also, um, noticing, like Jesus says, look at her, just notice her noticing those around us who, um, don't have to force themselves in the story and, and seeking to learn from them. Um, well, what does the story mean to you and how do you understand it? Um, given that you don't have to force yourself, the story is about you. Uh, another thing I also, in the beginning of my book, I mentioned Rigoberta Menchu, and she's a Quiche Mayan woman uh, from Guatemala. And I just love her story and her life. Um, she has a, a biography that you can read, but she um, talks about how she actually learned, so she's an indigenous woman, and she actually learned self-defense for her indigenous community through mm. reading the Bible because she was reading the story of David and Goliath. I know you mentioned that story earlier. She's reading the story of David and Goliath. And she was like, oh yeah, like my indigenous people, like we're David, obviously. And the government, you know, is the Goliath. And so David threw a rock and killed Goliath with a rock. So that's self-defense. So we need to take up arms against our colonizers, you know? And of course there's so many ethical things to, you know, talk about that. But I just think that that's so interesting yeah. that she, you know, as a literally a colonized indigenous person living in the rural, you know, in the countryside of Guatemala, and this was during the Guatemalan Civil War, I mean, you know, years ago or decades ago. And that's how she, you know, led her people in um, self-defense against the colonizers. And it was through identifying as David. And so, yeah, I think that there is so much that we can learn about, um, just so much more learn about the Bible, but also just about the people around us when we, when we notice, right? We just notice those who don't have to force themselves into the narrative. Another phrase that you use or sends, this comes a little bit later in the book, um, but you, you, you talk about um, 
the problems with the probably a well-meaning phrase, we need to make space at the table for people on the margins, you know, and that's easy for me to say, I mean, I'm on faculty hiring, we're always trying to hire uh, persons that aren't just white male theologians, which isn't always the easiest thing to do. Um, but in this, and again, I don't, he didn't hear necessarily questioning the intent there, but the idea that we need to make space for the other to be part of our groups, whereas you kind of argue for the reverse of that, right? Yeah, um, yeah, I, and and again, you know, like you mentioned, that is a very well-intentioned phrase, and, and I, I don't necessarily have a problem with it in the sense that, of course, we should always make space for people, but yeah, I, I like to flip it on its head, and I think that yeah. this is, I sort of use like a decolonized way of, of viewing this, would be like realizing, first of all, that, um, you know, marginalized people have their own tables they've had yeah, their that's own good tables. right <laughs> yeah it's not like you know just the privileged folks have had their own tables and then oh look you know these are tableless people we can invite no they have their own tables um you know and I, I mentioned how my grandmother you know she set her own tables and she and it was her table and she got to say what we ate and she you know all of those things and and yeah there is um there's 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 something important and something beautiful um to to name that right to name that marginalized folks have their own tables um but yeah i think that there's also something about allowing those of us with varying levels of privilege um to allow ourselves to be guests at these tables um, instead of forcing people to leave their tables and come sit at our tables, um, you know, and I say like in the name of Jesus or in the name of love, quote unquote love. Um, no, I think that we need to just be guests and allow ourselves to be uncomfortable and not force people to sit at our tables and eat our food and, you know, not force them to have the conversations that we want them to have. Um, but to just be a guest, right? Um, to be a guest at someone else's table because marginalized folks and communities have their own tables. Uh, that was really good. And, and related to that, one of the things that I've always, that I've learned pro- probably from reading, I guess, Justo Gonzalez, um, Biblia mm-hmm. Sancta, and, and uh, this different, um, I'm trying to think of this other guy who teaches up at Candler Seminary, but he always talked about the borderlands and then the issue of when you're in live in exile in some ways like that's the the, the cuban american experience has been an exile one and even puerto ricans in some ways they've moved to right. florida new york or wherever from um, from from the caribbean you end up being in this space that um again and i think i don't even know i should ask you how to say this before we got our interstitial is that how you say that word yeah okay but you get this space where you're you really don't you sort of have a you're in this third space you're not really you're, you're a foreigner in one place, but then you're the person that left in the other space. And so you exist in this really interesting borderland place, which to me is, I mean, to me, that's the gospel at some level anyway, because we're in the world, not of it. We, we become our citizenship is in heaven, but um, but your book really reminds us that there's people that that's the there's a million probably billions of people on the planet that's not just some theological construct right. that might sit but that's their actual life and so um how can we learn to actually just be christians i would say everybody that learn how to live in that those kind of spaces and what can we learn from you know say like an abuelita faith that can help um you know, all of us to learn what it means to live in these middle spaces and to be comfortable with that. And how would our churches be different if we, um, you know, took, lived in these interstitial relationships, if that's the way to use that r- phrase? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so you use the word, uh, you know, comfortable. How do we, you know, how are we comfortable there? And I think that that's key. Um, I, something I talk about in Abuelita Faith, you know, dominant culture doesn't like middle spaces, right? <laughs> like we like, uh, dominant culture, Western culture, whatever you want to call it, loves things to be very clear and very simple and very black and white. Um, you know, you either fit here, or you fit there, or this is what you are, this is not what you are. And I think that um, sort of embracing the fact that we hold multitudes within us um, is one way that we can really, um, yeah, lean into that, lean into the fact that we are complicated people and we are people who hold so many different identities, um, all in one, right? We, I am, you know, I'm, I'm becoming a mother soon and, and I am a daughter and, and I am Cuban, but I'm also American, you know, um, and I am a woman, you know, there's so many things, 
um, aspects to who I am that I don't fit in one neat category. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and I think that's true for all of us. I think that's true, particularly for people of faith and we're you know, people who have different interests and we exist in different spaces, um, whatever it is, right? And so I think that, um, as you mentioned the word comfortable, I think that that's a big part of it is just being comfortable with being messy people. Mm-hmm. Um, being comfortable with being multifaceted people. And I think that that's something, um, you know, I mentioned in my book of how those of us who come from from all these different worlds, right, um, that we live in this sort of borderland reality, that there's somewhat, there's sometimes shame of being in that space, you know, mm-hmm. like, because, oh, yeah, you know, I'm not, as we say, um, ni de aquí, ni de allá, I'm not from here nor from there. But like, what if that is actually a good thing? What if that's a, a thing to embrace? Um, it may be uncomfortable for dominant culture, but but what if in that third middle ground is where God is, right? Yeah, like that's yeah. mostly where God is. Um, and I think that that makes sense to me considering that God or considering that Jesus was sort of, you know, this, this hybrid, you know, Jesus had this hybrid identity. And, you know, I've been thinking so much about, you know, Jesus is called a lion, but Jesus is also called a lamb. And mm-hmm. how do you reconcile those two? I mean, Jesus is a very complicated character. And I think that we like to simplify Jesus a lot as well. We like to either over-spiritualize Jesus. I, I think that's what we like to do the most is over-spiritualize Jesus. But um, but yeah, and so I think that um, looking at the life of Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, and the life of so many, uh, you know, in our in our world who live in in between places, um, us as people of faith, but also you know those of us who hold different identities, I think that being comfortable in that space and inviting the church to sit in that space in that messy, complicated space. I work with a lot of youth. And, and that's something I learned so much from, from a lot of teenagers is that, I mean, it's complicated to be a teenager. Like you're learning to drive and you're applying for college and like, you're doing all these really weird life, big things at the same time. And you're still sort of a kid, but like, you're not, you know, uh, anyway. So yeah, I think it's just sitting in just being a complicated person and being okay with that and not trying to, to have all the answers sort of what we do with the Bible, right? Letting the Bible be be messy and complicated, letting us as people be messy and complicated and the yeah. church. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Now, now that was really good. And I want to ask a kind of a, a sideways question. This is the one we talked about at the beginning, but I think it flows out of here. I mean, fairly naturally, it seems like when we talk about being comfortable with, um, with, with uncertainty, with things that are complicated, one of the things that you can run into, and you talk a little bit about this in your book is um, sometimes um, uh, Abuelita's are criticized for some of the, um, I would say, acquired wisdom that they got from culture, right? As though, let's say, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Scottish, Irish, basically, that's what my whole family is. And so we got this stuff that came over from Scotland and Ireland, and at least up in the Midwest, nobody thinks twice about it, because all kinds of other people are from Scotland and Ireland. But as soon as I run into somebody with a different background, all their kind of things they used to do back in the homeland. Oh, that doesn't seem very Christian all of a sudden because we get these mixtures. And so how do we stay open um, to, and and actually, I guess it wouldn't be, yeah, it would be open. How do we not shut down when somebody from with different set of experiences, different proverbs, different sayings that perhaps come out of, you know, uh, that are from the pre-Christian past and all of our cultures have pre-Christian past. So how do we think about that in a way that allows us to be more open to persons that are different from ourselves um, and not be so afraid, oh, this is idolatry or syncretism. Right. And again, that's kind of a huge question, but um, you know, I don't know what, what your yeah. thoughts are about that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a good question. Um, well, I think it starts with understanding and really believing that God is big, right? Like I always like to say, like believing in the bigness of God. Yeah, um, it's good. It's good. Yeah, because we, I, I think, you know, we say, yeah, God is far beyond everything that we can understand or imagine, but then we only cling to images of God or, or understandings of God that make sense to us and our culture. Um, and I think that that is something that, you know, I didn't start, I, I wasn't able to embrace an abuelita faith. I wasn't able to really embrace my upbringing and my culture and my background until I, I believed really in the bigness of God. And I believed that, you know, if I, if all those things that I say, I believe about God are true, then, then of course, 
God um, imparts God's wisdom in other people in other cultures in other, um, you know, I mean, I talk a little bit about this in my book and, and I mentioned this earlier, but you know, one example is just like how I, when I talk about Exodus and I talk about the midwives and I talk about, you know, and I do this sort of quickly, I wish I would have spent more time, but I talk about midwifery in the ancient world and, um, you know, midwifery in, in ancient Egypt or in ancient Israel, there was, it was a spiritual thing. I mean, you know, women would, it, there was spiritual rituals and they were spiritual leaders and there was things that they would do. They would rub salt on infants' bodies. And, and this was like all, you know, things that people would do that nowadays we'd look at it and say, oh my goodness, you know, that is so anti-Christian or whatever you want to call it, you know, um, same thing with, with, um, you know, herbs or so, you know, I, I kind of bring this up a little bit, but, um, it, and it's in, sort of in the same vein as this, but nowadays, you know, um, essential oils are like, so, uh, they're so in, in Christian spaces. Um, but this is something that has been around in indigenous religion or indigenous spirituality and African, you know, whatever for so long. And, it says something about Western culture that we can take a key part of spiritual practices of another um, culture, you know, kind of rip it from its context, take the, the, you know, whatever we think is okay about it and then demonize the rest of it. And I think that that, um, to me, that just doesn't seem right. I think if we're, if we're recognizing the wisdom that is found there is found in essential oils or in ancient, you know, midwifery or whatever you want to call it, I think if we can admit that there is something obviously <laughs> to learn or to glean from that, um, whether it's natural healing or whatever it is, then how are we not to say that like God was a part of that, <laughs> you know, like God, that, that that's God's wisdom, you know, if we believe that all wisdom is God's wisdom. Um, and that's what people say. I hear that all the time, but yet, you know, yeah, we, we demonize things. And so I think for me, I, I, you know, I've sort of been on that journey. Um, you know, obviously I don't have the, the perfect answers to that, but I I'm on that journey of, of reclaiming a lot of my spirituality that I was later told, you know, that, that was demonized for me later on when I'm realizing, wait a minute, but that's not, how is that, you know, like I, I, toward the end of my book, I talk about this one woman who she helped raise me and, she was a poor woman, immigrant woman from Cuba, and she lived in little Havana in a small apartment. And, you know, she was taken advantage of by the person that was, that she cleaned their home, a, a rich person, you know, and she was taken advantage of, and her son had come out as gay in the 1980s in Miami. And it was just, you know, she had a really hard life and, um, she didn't feel safe at church. You know, she didn't feel safe, um, being among other people because of, you know, whatever baggage she felt like she was carrying. Um, and so she would sit at home with her altar and I'd sit with her on the floor and, you know, we had all this, this altar and, and we would pray the rosary. And I knew that that was a sacred and holy time and a sacred and holy space. And that was her time with God. Um, and maybe some Christians would right now would look at that and say, well, that's not Christian, um, but who's to say, you know, you don't know her heart or what, you know, how God was working through her life. Um, I, I know that that was a sacred and holy time. And yeah, maybe she was praying the rosary, but it doesn't mean that, you know, she wasn't acknowledging, you know, I knew that she knew who Jesus was, you know. So anyway, I think that just to answer your question, as I mentioned earlier, um, just embracing the bigness of God and not being more afraid of what, you know, I don't know what we think, what demons are going to like, you know, come into our whatever, not being more afraid than just being confident of who God is. I think um, we live mostly in fear as Christians versus just living in the freedom of, of who God is. Yeah, that's a, that's a really that's a really helpful answer. So uh, thank you. And again, I, thanks for reminding us the story about the um, yeah the how your how, was it your housekeeper who was it? I remember the story in the it book. Was just it, a, a friend of the family. Oh, friend, okay, yeah, yeah. That was. I mean, I loved the other part about your book that you just wove so many different stories of of real people and lives to illustrate things. So it's just really really good. So thanks for reminding okay. and listeners. Hopefully, folks will check out the book. Well, I know we're almost out of time, so let me just ask you some really quick questions here. Yeah. Again, thank you for your time. Um, yeah. Like if you were going to say, like, what, what, what do you really hope people would take away from reading um, Abolita Faith? What would be a couple of uh, quick things that you would just hope folks would gather from your book? Yeah. From um, your book? yeah. I think since I was just thinking about the bigness of God, that's like the number one thing on my head right now. That's but yeah, word. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think um, 
being open and, and available and, um, yeah, willing to hear from God from least expected people in least expected places, um, being willing to acknowledge that, um, yeah, again, the greatest theologians are, are those who we may not even consider theologians at all. And I think that we can get a fuller picture of who God is, um, a fuller picture of what the gospel is uh, when we're willing to, to, yeah, be guests at unfamiliar tables and, um, yeah, allow God to surprise us um, in different spaces and through different people. And so I think that that's something that I would really want different people to take from my book and also to see scripture through a new lens um, to see, you know, I love the Bible and I know that the Bible is complicated and, you know, there's a lot of things I don't love about the Bible. Um, but I think that there, um, yeah, there, there's so much to wrestle with and there's so much to glean from it. And I think that if we're, if we're open, you know, open-minded is not probably the right word, but if we're willing um, to yeah, investigate every angle of it, I think that we can learn so much more about God and each other and the world and just how to, you know, be better at doing this Christian thing, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. yeah. Great. And what's, so what's next for you? Do you have another book in you? Is there a book that you're kind of afraid to write that you like to write? So what, what's, what's, what's coming up for you? Yeah, actually. So I signed a two book deal with Brazos. Oh, cool. And so, yeah, yeah, so I will be writing a second book. Um, and that will, um, we're still, we're still narrowing down the details of that, but yeah, that, that will be coming out uh, sooner than later. Um, and then um, a book that I'm afraid to write, you know, <laughs> right now, Cuba is all over the news. Oh, that's and, true. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and I, you know, writing this book, I did so much research on Cuba and I ended up not using a lot of the research that I did because I was like, this isn't a political book. This is a theological one. Um, I would love to, to be able to wrestle with the politics of Cuba theologically. Mm. Although, yeah, that would be, um, I'm terrified to do that. So <laughs> that would be something that I would love to do. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of my favorite questions just to kind of see because it is right. it's, it's always interesting what people will say so that makes that makes complete sense <laughs> yeah. well uh, just uh, again uh, real quick i don't want to uh, i know we have we have a deadline coming up but like can you talk a little bit about um um like what keeps you grounded you're doing all this important work i mean you, you have a family you're in school so how and you know i mean i guess you're going to say you read the bible a lot which i think is completely apparent but do, do you have other things kind of sitting under their spiritual practices that really form you and keep you grounded yeah actually um i actually meditate very regularly and that's something that i got into um recently when i got pregnant um just because wow. i wanted to just get my my you know there's a lot of anxiety around that but yeah yeah. Um, I started, I started doing that really regularly and just, um, paying attention to my breath. And so what I do, I, I meditate every day and I use an app, which is helpful because I can't just do that on my own. Um, but I started doing that and then I'll take about an app or not, depending on how much time I have every day, but I'll read, um, just a spiritual, something spiritual right now. I'm reading braiding sweet, sweet grass, excuse me, by Robin wall Kimmer. Um, and it's not a Christian book or anything, but she just talks about the reciprocity of the land and, and plants and, and it's such a beautiful book and, and I love um, trying to find God in places that I usually wouldn't. And so right now I'm on this journey of really just exploring the divine, um, yeah, in plants and, and in the outdoors and um, how God is so, you know, intertwined and in all of that and so you know, I think of it so much when I read, even when I read scripture now through this lens, you know, Jesus tells us so much, like consider the lilies of the field and look at the birds of the air. And Jesus is so attuned to creation. And so that's been something in this season, um, being, trying to be attuned to creation and things that I wouldn't normally um, pay attention to. Um, yeah. And then, and just meditating every day. And then of course, you know, doing my Bible reading and all of that, but, but I try and be very aware of, of how God is at work in every moment of every day. Um, I, I posted a little thing about this on social media, but, um, I love the passages in the Bible when, um, folks are, and it happens with Abraham and Isaac and I think Moses and several other people, but, you know, they'll be doing something uh, sleeping. Jacob is sleeping at one point. And, um, all of a sudden like God appears or something and whether it's, he wrestles with him or he has a dream or whatever happens or Moses in the bush and 
something spiritual happens and they don't know in the moment that it's God. They just, they're like, oh, that's weird, you know? And then it's not until later that they realize, wait a minute, I think God was here. And then they stop what they're doing and they build an altar. And I just, that's one of my favorite little details in the Bible um, because it's so relatable, you know? Like we'll just be doing our thing throughout the day and, or I'll just be doing my thing throughout the day. And then I'll stop and I say, wait a minute. I think God, that was God. God was there, whether it's a conversation I had or a breeze or, you know, whatever. Um, and so I, lately I've been doing my little spiritual practices to build an altar. You know, whenever I realize the presence of God, whether that's just writing it down, that's my little altar. I even literally, sometimes I'll be outside and I'll put little rocks together cool. and I'll build a little yeah. altar and, you know, and. Yeah. And so I think, um, just trying to be, and, and meditation helps with that because it helps me to be present. And so, yeah, just being present, um, to how God might be moving and working and, you know, again, through a bird or a burning bush, right. It could be anything. So yeah, those are some little things that I do. Uh, that's so, that's so cool. And what two or three books that have really helped you in the course of your life, uh, spiritually, other than the scriptures, what, what comes to mind? Yeah. Um, you know, one book that was, and I'm sure in different seasons, there's different, I'll have different responses to this, but um, I, I, again, Robin Wall Kimmer, her book right now has been very incredible for me. Um, just looking for God in the plants and the, you know, when she's an incredible writer. Um, but I would say, um, you know, Ada Maria Sassidias and Mujerista Theology, and that was very big for me as far as like developing this book and developing this sort of abuelita theology, um, you know, just, she's the mother of Mujerista theology, which is um, liberation theology from a Latina woman's perspective. And that's been very influential for me. Um, and also I recently uh, was rereading Barbara Brown Taylor's uh, book, The Preaching Life. Um, that book uh, was very helpful for me in my early, when I left, um, you know, the first seminary I was at and, and I was going through a very transitional time because she talks a lot about disillusionment and how it's a beautiful thing. And we sort of see disillusionment or losing the illusion that we had about God for something new um, as a negative thing, but she reframes that really beautifully. And so that's, but that was a really helpful book for me at, you know, a, a several years ago. And so, yeah. I would say right probably those three. Yeah, thank you. And again, I'm going to put links to all your social media and folks should, if they don't follow you on Instagram, should definitely follow you. Cause your, your posts are so, or, I mean, you're so good. I like the, I, you know, I, I follow a lot of people, but I always, yours are really good. And like, I remember you had thank the stuff you. about Barbara Brown Taylor. I'm like, this is good yeah. stuff. Um, you always put really good reflections, but where, where would you say if, if you want to put point people to a place where they can find more about you, where would that be Kat? Yeah. I mean, my website, uh, catarmus.com. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was, I was very active on Twitter for a little bit. I've been taking more of a break on Twitter to do Instagram stuff. So, I mean, those are just two places beside, besides my uh, website, my website, I also have a newsletter. So if you want to sign up for that, um, and my podcast, the protagonistas. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really good. No, well, I want to just say, thank you. Uh, thank you for your faithfulness of being the person you are and writing this fantastic book, I Believe to Faith. Hope everybody has a chance to take a look at that. Thanks for sharing your time yeah. with us today. Thank you so much. This was so fun. Thank you for your wonderful questions. Oh, you're welcome. And thanks listeners for coming, making it all the way to the end with us. And until next time, live by faith, be known by love and be voices of hope in a world that needs it. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I invite you to check out the show notes for resources to find out more about this week's guest. And if you really found this episode helpful, would you take a couple minutes and share it with a friend or share it on your social media? Or even better, if you could leave a review wherever you have located this podcast and that will help other people to find it. If you're interested in Centering Prayer, I'd invite you to go to centeringprayerbook.com and sign up for information about my forthcoming book, Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence Can Change Your Life. It'll be out in September, and I'd love to share with you some resources to help you get started on a centering prayer practice in advance of my book coming out. We'll see you next week.